I'm Trevor Cummings, and these are my thoughts on money. Hello, and welcome to the Thoughts on Money podcast, what we like to call Tom. I'm Trevor Cummings, the author of the Thoughts on Money blog and your host of the Thoughts on Money podcast. And I'm here today with my special guest, who is not Sean Latimer. He's not with us today. We've upgraded to Mr. Dea Pernas. Hey, how's it going? Well, I don't know what uh, what kind of an upgrade that is, but uh, yeah, hi, I'm, I'm Dea. I, uh, uh, for those who don't know, I, I I run the trading and analysis component uh, of our group, and uh, it's a pleasure for me to be here. Yeah, Dea is a good friend, and it's uh, enjoyable to work with him. Just like Sean, uh, Dea and I will go to lunch sometimes and kind of just riff back and forth. So this would be a great opportunity to use this podcast uh, for some of those same discussions. Today, we're going to be talking about a topic called unknowable. And I opened up with a little bit of did I get that right? Is that right? Yeah, so we opened up with Jeopardy. And I talked about how um, 2020 has a a lot of things to complain about. And I I joked around that it's kind of become the butt of all these jokes, right? There's like all these memes about how horrible 2020 is. And maybe this kind of got brushed over because of everything bad going on, but it was a tragedy. We lost Alex Trebek in uh, in 2020. Were you a watcher of the show? Uh, you know, I'm not. I'm not the greatest trivia person in the world, but I was very. But my parents are, and I have a lot of friends are who are, who are very uh, bummed out. I think Trebek. Uh, it's just it's very nostalgic when people think of him. They think of sitting around their living room and you know trivia with their friends and family. So, yeah, it was definitely a bummer to lose him. Uh, and who replaced him? It was. Um, Who's going to be like the interim replacement? Right, yeah. I believe it's going to be Ken Jennings. Oh, okay, okay. And okay. he's the one that kind of set the record. He won like 74 consecutive uh, Jeopardy games. And That's he right. actually, because yeah. uh, you're a golfer, he like, uh, he tigered Jeopardy. You know what I mean? Like where Jeopardy lost maybe some viewership or things like that or was ah. less popular. When Jennings was winning so much, ah. he was like on ESPN and it like created this buzz around where more people were watching Jeopardy because they wanted to see kind of how long he would last. Sure. Like he had some star power, some Jeopardy star power. Exactly. And I, I saw on Twitter that somebody posted when Alex Trebek passed away is kind of like, hey, putting it out there, who's the best person to replace him? And I was going through like this long list of responses and there was a ton of Ken Jennings. Oh, wow. I wow. think most people, when they thought of Jeopardy, Alex Trebek was the first person. Sure. And this might sound weird because he was by far the first person, but Jennings was kind of like the second person wow. that people wow. thought of. Did you know who that was when I wrote about it in the article? Yeah. I, I mean, the recency bias. You know, I, I remember hearing the name uh, when he was, you know, crushing the game, uh, you know, a year ago or, or whatever it is. But I never saw I never saw him on Jeopardy. I assume he must have had some personality, too, for, for people, for him to have that kind of star power. So that's a good thing. I don't know if I ever watched it when I don't he think was I on it, it too. Yeah, because yeah, uh, it was kind of when he was doing it, it might have been around the time of like cutting the cord. Like, I don't know if uh, I even okay. had cable. Do right. you have cable at home? Uh, I don't. The cord has been cut. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So what was it like growing up in your family? Did, was that something where like, hey, like at five o'clock Jeopardy comes on and like the Pernos family gets together and watches it? Or is it kind of just random? Yeah, it, it was kind of random. But there was some regularity to it. Uh, but my dad loved it. My And my dad's... Uh, you know, uh, very interested in all a uh, very wide range of topics. So you know, he's he's really good at it, and he liked to watch it. And you know, we we watched what he wanted to watch. So <laughs> fair enough. Yeah, I wrote about in the article that this idea that Jennings won seventy four in a row, and he won like four point five million dollars. He knew a lot of things about a lot of things, but he didn't know everything. And I think that's a good pivot point to what we're going to talk about today as a financial topic: is the unknowable. 
And I joked around in the article, and maybe I didn't joke around, but this idea that when you start the year, we're starting 2021, every large financial firm, their chief investment officer is going to come out and make a forecast about what the results will be for the stock market for 2021. And it is, I guess, laughable because it is actually unknowable. What's your opinion when they, they, they publish those or what, what has been your thoughts in the past? You know, uh, and, and I read your article, and I think it makes some great points uh, that, I, that I think some readers and listeners uh, w- would do well to heed. You know, I, I think it's, you know, it's part of like human nature to forecast, to use the information we have to make predictions. Uh, we do it unconsciously all the time. Uh, of course. You know, so uh, I, I, th- I think it's normal to try to prepare and, and, and try to make some sort of uh, predictions about what, what sort of themes that are going on in, you know, next year or whatever it is. And some of those, I think, uh, do have a lot of value. Uh, like understanding, so I don't think I would object to yeah. themes, but what is your thought on when somebody actually is... A is prediction. A, a prediction on a price point. Okay, so so I think this is a good point. So how are you, uh, like, if because if, if you're talking about to a statistician, a prediction has a very defined meaning. Like, what? how do you define prediction? Good question. So are you saying when... Well, actually, let me say this. So I worked at a large, as you did too, mm-hmm. uh, wirehouse investment bank uh, investment firm. We won't mention the name on here, but you can look at our resumes and you could easily figure out what that was. And I remember each year, the chief investment officer would basically say, we believe that the year is going to end the S&P 500 ah. at you know X dot, 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 dot. And I always thought, man, what's the point? Because three months later, you're going to make a revision up or down. So maybe I misunderstood. But I mean, I feel like that was an important tradition for them to say, we think this exact 2200 S&P or 30,000 Dow or whatever it is, is what the year will end at. Got it. So, so, so there is a precise price point and a, a defined time period for to get exactly. That. Okay. So it's right. not like to say, oh, we believe within this range because of these themes that the probability is eighty ah, okay, percent. Okay. No, this okay. is like at the end of the year, we believe the price point is going to be X. Yeah, I think there's uh, it gives you the illusion of some sort of precision, and uh, I think point predictions like that are more or less meaningless. I, I think it gives comfort for people to hear a number, and uh, they're kind of, I think, pandering a little bit to uh, you know their investors and their clients by, by issuing that type of prediction. Uh, so, so I think um, if you're going to just say, here's a single scenario, and I think this is exactly what the S&P is going to do, um, it, it has to be couched by uh, I, I think a significant amount of disclaimers to say, look, you know, this is our best guess, but we don't really know what's going to happen because of X, Y, and Z. And uh, really, it, it should fall within some sort of range. Uh, but other than that, yeah, I mean, uh, there's a lot of uh, factors that can affect the stock market that are completely out of uh, the range of outcomes that people think are possible. And the impact can be uh, completely different than people think are possible. And so so there's all sorts of interactions that make forecasting a price point like that a, a very uh, useless exercise uh, when it when it comes to the stock market. Yeah, I, in the article, I kind of compared it in jest a little bit, but to Groundhog's Day. Yeah. Like yeah. it's a tradition that yeah. he will come in and if he sees a shadow, we believe that the seasons will change in this amount of time or whatever. But it's more of a tradition than a confidence. And I think in our industry, it's very similar. I liked what you were telling me yesterday at lunch. You were talking about how, and maybe you can kind of just mm. riff on this, is how the world of finance 
wants to be like physics and have these hard laws, but you were talking about, and I'll let you take it from there, what is kind of the difference you saw? Uh, right. So if, if for, any, for anybody out there who's studied finance or took some sort of curriculum, there is a lot of uh, theory out there that is really grounded in certain assumptions. And uh, what a lot of finance courses like to do is create certain models to be able to explain uh, certain events or to be able to extrapolate prices. If, if you think about uh, modern portfolio theory, uh, capital asset pricing models uh, that are using standard deviation and all these inputs to come up with, uh, you know, there's beta standard deviation uh, to come up with a sort of pricing model for how uh, s- securities, you know, should should be valued. And I think it's important to realize that uh, these models, although they they're they have some sort of use. There, and to quote, uh, uh, I forget which statistician, uh, but you know, Taleb maybe. Uh, All models are good until they're broken, or something. Right. I, I don't think it was Taleb. Okay. I think it was someone else. But but uh, but essentially, the whole idea is uh, all models are wrong, but some are useful. Oh yes, I've heard that. So uh, so it, it it's incredibly important as you're going through those that that you you think of them mainly as thought experiments and not as any sort of gospel because they're all wrong and if you ascribe too much importance to them, uh, you're going to end up with some sort of self inflicted <laughs> wound. <laughs> and I think that's a good point because if you're coming outside of finance and you're not familiar with this field, I, I think I do get a lot of questions where people say. Like, aren't I hiring you because you're so extremely smart and you know where the market's going that you can provide those predictions, which that's not true. Like most of the time, you're not going to be the smartest guy in the room, especially when you have a marketplace that has millions of participants with a, a ton of knowledge that is almost unknowable. Would you agree with that? Uh, I, I, w- I would completely agree. Uh, and I would also go a little further that uh, being the smartest guy guy in the room or girl or or girl uh smartest guy or gal i don't know what that does for you all all that is to say is uh if you're saying by the smartest guy you're able to intake all the information and weight it all accordingly and then come up with a prediction that's better than the market i don't think uh anybody's reliably able to do that consistently over time yeah so uh, so all, all that is to say is that i think that the reason why our clients pay us and the reason why our clients trust us is because we approach things from the unknowable and the risk side of things first before we make decisions. And I think you, you have to really understand uh, historically how prices and asset classes move together and how there can be exogenous shocks to the market. And you have to understand uh, different crises and how psychology affects things to be able to properly allocate client capital. And that's why clients trust us, not because we have some sort of special insight on the direction of the market, you know, which is unforecastable in, in our opinion. I'm going to throw a curveball at you. Sure. Um, but if so, if somebody comes in, they're like, okay, now you're telling me that it's actually not an IQ thing. Um, and I don't know if I can articulate this question very well, but if you're telling somebody the best college degree that they should go out and get that would make them a great investor, and we're saying it's probably not a finance degree. What would it be? Uh, the best college degree. I don't believe that there is a specific um, current college curriculum that exists that can perfectly prepare somebody to be a good investor. I think to be a good investor, you have to be a multidisciplinarian. You have to draw from different fields, fields such as psychology, 
you know, fields like economics, uh, logic, um, you know, biology. There's a lot of different synthesis that has to kind of go on in your mind to be able to make sense of the world around you uh, when it comes to investing. And you also have to be able to, you also have to have a certain discipline and you also need to understand your own nature to a degree and the emotions that are involved and all that and all those things. Right. So uh, I don't believe there's a specific curriculum, but any, any, uh, any curriculum that I think is grounded in a more, uh, in a more of a hard science, I think promotes maybe more logical type thinking that will give you a leg up over maybe a softer type of science. Interesting. In my opinion. But you mentioned psychology, which that would be a softer science. Right, exactly. What would you exactly. derive from psychology or kind of what things do you think people could learn that applies to finance? I think uh, primarily uh, how the uh, – up until about 20 years ago, it was uh, – and this, I guess this has only been recently discovered, the – you know, maybe even in the last 10 years – that the human, you know, pe- people's decision making is rife with psychological pitfalls, and understanding why those irrational behaviors exist, uh, the data behind them. If we can reliably assume that people are bad decision makers when it comes to certain situations, uh, you know, uh, to give you an example, when there's a, where there's a lot of increased fear. Uh, people tend to stop, th- you know, they don't think long term, they, they, t- they tend to be very now oriented. And they make, uh, d- you know, they make decisions that make them feel good at the moment, at the cost of long term returns. And mm-hmm. they do this very reliably, uh, when there is that elevated fear. And, you know, un- understanding that how powerful of a driver some of these emotions are, uh, fear and greed, and how they contribute certain cycles in the market. Uh, if you have a uh, a good psychology or a good psychology background, and not all psychology backgrounds are created equal. <laughs> but if you have a good one, I, I think it can lead you to uh, important conclusions about the way market cycles work. So, is, I like what you said there. And does that mean that maybe the economics one on one that you and I took right. that taught us that uh, all actors are rational has maybe been not flipped on its head, but maybe challenged a little bit with this idea of behavioral economics that you're saying in times of fear or greed, that people actually start to act a little bit irrational? Right. And people start to act uh, completely rational. I think it's very evident that the market is not uh, efficiently priced at all times. Uh, I would go so far as, as to say it's almost never priced perfectly. Uh, but that maybe that's a different conversation. Yeah. Uh, but the prevailing thought is anybody that comes out of college is like, oh, oh the market is efficient, and, which means, uh, you know, whether they're able to articulate it or not, or, or not, is that the market is able to take all the a- available information that's out there, weight it, weight it precisely, and come up with a price. And all you need is a couple of anecdotes to disprove that. Uh, I, I don't know if you remember when uh, Twitter, uh, Twitter, Twitter started uh, IPO'd a few years ago. And there was this other ticker, I believe it was TWRT, or yeah. one of the one of the letters was switched. And the day at IPO, this other this other symbol, this other stock went up like you know a hundred percent or something like that. I think. I mean, even more recently, right? I, I and there are all sorts of Zoom technologies. It's yeah. Same thing. Uh, there was a, a, another company with the same name, whole different business, but uh, people weren't understanding which is which. Right. Exactly. So j- just one instance like that disproves this notion that markets are are efficient. And if uh, if you talk to uh, proponents of um, you know this efficient market hypothesis, th- they will tell you 
that, you know, Eugene Fama and really the, the creators of all this stuff, they will say, they'll make a concession, say, okay, we agree there's some flaws, but there's no overarching model that is better. So yeah. let's just keep this one, which, uh, I mean, you know, if, if you're intellectually curious, that, that, that doesn't leave me satisfied. Uh, so, but, but that's why they continue to teach that in schools is because, right, this model is incredibly flawed, but there's really no other one out there. And because they like to teach theory in schools, this is a theoretical framework that they're going with at the moment. Yeah. And if you're a listener and that kind of piques your curiosity, you can do a, a YouTube search on conversations with Eugene Fama and Richard Thaler. Right. Oh, they're um, fantastic. Yeah. One yeah. coming from uh, Eugene Fama, the father of emis- uh, efficient market theory, and then uh, Thaler, who is a behavioral economist. And kind of their back and forth as friends, but also disagreeing is not only comical, but it's uh, you can you can glean a lot from it. Oh, it's fantastic. And then uh, it, one of the one of the uh, snippets in there. Fama was uh, was you know you know giving him a little flack for some of his anecdotes, and he's like, "Well, you need to stop dredging for anecdotes." And he's like, "Well, you need to stop theory dredging." Yeah, exactly. It's kind of funny yeah, to see fun them go back, back and forth. forth. Yeah. So maybe you're listening to this and you feel like, "Oh man, yikes!" Now I realize that where do I find an edge? And that's kind of where I pivoted this article, and I said, hey, let's not even look at me as a financial advisor, but me as an investor. Where do I find my edge? And I pivoted this conversation to talk about basketball, uh, which has maybe nothing to do with finance, but I love basketball. I play two or three days a week, not since COVID, which uh, is unfortunate, and I hope to get back to it soon. But one of the things I mentioned in the article is that the average height of an NBA basketball player is six foot six, which is a 40 year low. The basketball, the, mm. the way basketball's uh, played is changing. So uh, the average height has actually gotten shorter, but the average height is six foot six. The average male in the United States is five foot nine, and Trevor Cummings, uh, soaking wet, stands five foot seven. So in a tall man's game where there's a joke in basketball that you can't teach tall, uh, I am not fully equipped to be a great basketball player. So height will not be my edge when I show up on the court. But I do know I'm usually the fastest guy on the court, and I got a quick first step. So I adjust my game of basketball to that edge that I have. And I think investors need to look at it that same way. I'm not trying to overemphasize this idea that you aren't going to be the smartest guy or gal in the room or you won't have access to all this information. But I am saying that that's probably not the edge that you want to lean into. So I will speak to myself where I find edge is one, in time horizon, and two, in temperament. Um, And I don't know if you agree with this, but what, what I talked about in the article is this idea of time horizon that most people, when they establish an investment account, they're earmarking that money for a future purpose. And that future purpose could be one year out, two years out, 10 years out. But based on how long it is, it is dictating the type of investments that are suitable or what you should own. So I started talking about this idea that the best time horizon is forever. What were your thoughts on that? I, I completely agree. I, I, I really don't have anything to add. I think that's perfect. Yeah, so I think where that becomes an edge, um, it allows me as an investor to set aside for investments that 
I don't want to say maximize return, but that I allow them the freedom to zig and zag, understanding with a forever time horizon that it is the most optimal type investment. And that definitely will change the allocation on how much you're allocating to cash or stocks or bonds. And this isn't to say for me personally that I don't have other shorter term goals, but it is to say that a majority of my wealth is in a bucket that I call a forever bucket. Absolutely. And I think it is a huge advantage. And oftentimes I hear a lot of people say that, look, how do I ever expect to do well in the market when there's so many professionals out there and there's all these firms and hedge funds and computers that are doing all this trading? And I think that that they they should realize they have a huge advantage over those uh, professional market participants per se. And that's a fact that they can have an extraordinarily long time horizon, which which can enable them to make decisions today that other people are not able able to make. And, uh, you know, Wall Street is does tend to be very short-term oriented. Yeah. It does tend to care a lot about calendar year returns, quarterly returns, monthly returns. And there is a pressure to deliver, you know, for uh, investors. So they may not be willing to, you know, invest in a company that has, you know, let, let's say adequate returns, and you're going to be able to realize adequate returns over a very long period of time. Uh, they may uh, they may not invest in that. May invest in something a little more volatile, maybe with the promise of shorter term returns, which is not a, a exactly optimal. So all, all that is to say is your your uh, investment uh, opportunity set is larger if you if you have that long term time horizon and you're able to make decisions uh, that other that other people can't, which inherently gives you an advantage. It's an edge. It absolutely is an edge. And I put a quote in there because I love it, and I'm sure you've heard it many times, but the first rule of compounding is never interrupt it unnecessarily. From exactly. Charlie yeah. Munger. That's a great one. That's yeah, great because one. Yeah. so much of wealth has to do with compounding, and so much of compounding has to do with time. And what is forever? A whole lot of time. <laughs> right, exactly. So that it yeah. becomes a, a nice uh, variable to throw into that compounding equation. The other side that I said that is also an edge, it's this idea of just temperament. Um, your ability to kind of disconnect from consensus or the crowd. Not to say that you might not agree on a lot of things, but that your perspectives are unique to your situation and you're not easily swayed to whatever the trend or the hot topic of the day is. What was your perspective on that? Absolutely. Uh, the, you know, not getting caught up in the mood of the moment is a huge part of, me, of what makes a good investor. And if you have that temperament and you have that time horizon, you can buy certain uh, securities or certain assets that are at a bargain because others don't want to own them right now. Uh, let, 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 you know, let's say some security or some, some areas of the market that have sold off uh, maybe some cyclical cyclical areas or energy, for instance. If you have the temperament, uh, you know energy has been sold off so severely, and if you're able to uh, buy certain investments that others that others you know are too un you know they get too uncomfortable holding because of volatility, and you have that time horizon in order to see those investments to fruition. And again, that that also can lead to uh, when you couple those two things, uh, it definitely leads to a big advantage. And since we quoted Munger, we'll quote Buffett where he says, uh, the most important quality for an investor is temperament, not intellect. You need a temperament that neither derives great pleasure from being with the crowd or against the crowd. And I love what he says there because it's not about always being a contrarian. Sometimes you're with the crowd. Sometimes you're 
against the crowd, but it's that you're not deriving some sort of emotional feed from that. And I know you're reading uh, Market Cycles right now by Howard Marks, and I love what he says is it's not only about being a contrarian, but you have to be a contrarian and you have to be right. So I think that speaks to a lot of disconnecting from maybe popular beliefs and kind of being grounded in your own convictions. Yeah, absolutely. And and it's hard. It's it's easier said than done. I understand, uh, you know, FOMA is a word that gets thrown a lot, around a lot. And yeah, fear is uh, f- fear is on, on both sides of the pendulum swing when things are going really well. And, and oh, oh, my God, this, you know, my, my friend who's an idiot is making a ton of money. <laughs> uh, you know, why am I not doing that? And, you know, that's fear of missing out. You think you're getting left behind and and you have to realize that these are irrational emotions and impulses. And over a long period of time, if you are subservient to these emotions and impulses, you're going to do yourself some harm. And it's it's best to understand that uh, your your nature uh, can sometimes be your worst enemy when investing. Once that realization sets in, even though may, a lot of people may know that intellectually, but I think it, they may not appreciate how profound that is exactly. And, and once you really understand the gravity of that, I think – you, you're one step closer to becoming a better investor. Yeah, I, I had a doctor recently speak to me, and he basically said there's this stereotype that doctors tend to make bad investments. And he said it, not me. I mean, I agree with him in the sense that I've seen a lot of that happen. And he kind of went on to say this idea of, man, doctors spend more time in school than anyone. They are absolutely educated, but they have a tendency or there have been anecdotal evidence that sometimes they can make poor investing decisions. And sometimes your expertise in one field is not always transla- translatable to, a, to another field. And obviously, it's not, I, I don't want to speak too much to a stereotype because it doesn't always apply. But when he told me that, it resonated with me. And I was like, oh, okay, that makes sense. And it's very self-aware for him to, to be able to say that. Yes. And I think that self-awareness is uh, incredibly important. And we see it all the time. We see we see people who are, and you know, like, like you said, it's not just doctors. Gen- generally speaking, people who have achieved a certain success in some area, uh, I think there's a certain amount of maybe overconfidence that's generated as a result of that, and they think that uh, scales to other areas when uh, when really it's absolutely not true. And if anything, some of their experience uh, in their field can actually hurt them when they try to translate it over. Like, we, you know, we deal with a lot of engineers, uh, I think, that are used to a certain uh, precision and a certain uh, comfort that comes from precision. Solvability. Solvability. Or- and, uh, you know, those those type of, types of concepts really get thrown out the window when you're dealing with uh, finance and making decisions in the face of uncertainty. And I think if you are somebody out there who uh, precision and solving something makes you feel good, uh, you have to realize that those, those urges – uh, need to be set aside in the field of finance. And I think you, you can only really understand that when you start understanding investing a little better. I agree with you, which is a great segue to talk about a janitor. Yeah, I, I read a, a book recently that I've been recommending to a lot of friends called The Psychology of Money. And the mm-hmm. author, Morgan Housel, one of the uh, anecdotes that he gives in, in the book talks about his favorite Wikipedia page. And it's this Wikipedia page about somebody that I, I don't think any of our listeners will ever have heard of. And his name is Ronald James Reed, who passed away in 2014. But let me give you the first line description of, of this gentleman. He was an American philanthropist, investor, janitor, and gas station attendant. And the article goes on to basically say kind of he was a, he had a long forever time horizon. He invested in quality companies. He avoided some of the trends of the time. And when he passed away, 
I think he passed away with $8 million, leaving you know a couple million dollars to a local hospital and other charities that he basically now has a popular place in finance pop culture where he shows up in magazine articles and this, that, and the other to basically say that these edges of temperament and long time horizon can actually play out to a huge benefit. And what's interesting in the book by Morgan Housel is he actually juxtaposes this story against a, a pretty famous uh, financier or I think hedge fund manager that basically lost all of his money mm. and says, hey, how do you put these two stories next to each other where one has an Ivy League education and all the prepping and, and, and things to be great at this field and ends up in bankruptcy while this person uh, unknowingly to his peers passes away with uh, – a sizable amount of wealth. Yeah, that's, that's incredible. And it's a great anecdote that describes exactly what we're talking about. And education and degrees and all, all these things are important. Uh, but it's important to realize at the end of the day, these are all tools that are supposed to help us make better decisions. And it all comes down to decision making. And if you, uh, if, if you let your, uh, what's that Mark Twain quote, I never let my uh, schooling get in the way of my education or, or as far as there's something like that. And, but if you, if you don't realize that, that the purpose of all this is to make better decisions, then you're going to, then uh, your laurels can almost, uh, can almost harm you in, in that sense uh, because they can give you maybe inflated ego or whatever the sense may be. You get a little overconfident and if you get overconfident, it, it tends to lead to bad decision making. Uh, so I, I think that it's it the humility is a really important ingredient of being an investor. Being able to understand that no matter how much I know or how much I study, there's always going to be things that happen that are out of my control, and I need to think of the world in terms of a range of outcomes. And I also need to realize that even if I think like that, there are always going to be outcomes uh, that occur that I haven't thought of, and how to properly prepare for those. And uh, and it's interesting, the, the whole long-term time horizon, too. They did a study. I forget the name of the exact study. Uh, but they were trying to, the purpose of the study was trying to understand how people think of their future selves. And uh, it was, uh, they put, uh, you know, I, I think like 30 or 50 people under uh, some sort of MRI and, and, you know, looked at the neurological responses in their mm -hmm. brain when they talked about themselves in the future. And uh, the, the conclusion of the study was when you talk about people's future selves, they uh, they tend to think of their future self as almost an independent person, as somebody who they don't like a stranger. Yeah, I mean it's the same uh, same impulses in their brain as if you would talk about a stranger. So all that is to say is that you know people don't really make decisions, time weighted decisions, uh, you know, across their lives properly and and optimally, and that and that gets back to psychology and understanding the behavioral side of things. But it turns out, hey, guess what? Your future self is is you, and they're pretty important. <laughs> so you need uh, you need to take care of that person as well. And uh, it looks, I mean, this janitor is uh, you know, ex janitor is a great example of that. Yeah, I agree a hundred percent. And uh, I think that's a good place for us to wrap up today. And uh, I want to thank you, Dave Pernas, for joining us. Hopefully, you can come back again. I'm going to ask our listeners to rate the podcast, to leave comments, and then you're always welcome to email us with any questions that you might have. It's dpernas at thebonsongroup.com and tcummings at thebonsongroup.com. Now, Dea doesn't know where we, Sean and I, usually end this podcast, so I will do this with my solo voice to say we will be back next week with more of our thoughts on money. Excellent. Thanks for having me.
The Bonson Group is registered with Hightower Securities, LLC, member FINRA and SIPC, and with Hightower Advisors, LLC, a registered investment advisor with the SEC. Securities are offered through Hightower Securities, LLC. Advisory services are offered through Hightower Advisors, LLC. This is not an offer to buy or sell securities. No investment process is free of risk, and there is no guarantee that the investment process or the investment opportunities referenced herein will be profitable. Past performance is not indicative of current or future performance and is not a guarantee. The investment opportunities referenced herein may not be suitable for all investors. All data and information referenced herein are from sources believed to be reliable. Any opinions, news, research, analysis, prices, or other information contained in this research is provided as general market commentary. It does not constitute investment advice. The team and Hightower shall not in any way be liable for claims and make no expressed or implied representations or warranties as to the accuracy or completeness of the data and other information, or for statements or errors contained in or omissions from the obtained data and information referenced herein. The data and information are provided as of the date referenced. Such data and information are subject to change without notice. This podcast was created for informational purposes only. The opinions expressed are solely those of the team and do not represent those of Hightower Advisors, LLC, or any of its affiliates. Hightower Advisors do not provide tax or legal advice. This material was not intended or written to be used or presented to any entity as tax advice or tax information. Tax laws vary based on the client's individual circumstances and can change at any time without notice. Clients are urged to consult their tax or legal advisor before establishing a retirement plan.